0: Okay, Romans 5. And whenever we handle God's word, we know that we're handling a divinely inspired communication. And we are not divine, so we need help from the divine one to understand what we're reading, what we're looking at. So let's do that right now. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at Romans chapter 5. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for these men. It is such an encouragement to see a room full of men here this morning. Uh, Lord, talking to one another, uh, seeing how one another is doing, sharing about our weeks. I praise you for each and every guy who is here. Lord, I praise you for the ones who are not here as well. I pray that they, would be well, that they would be well with you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word. Lord, we are so blessed to have your communication to us in our own language right in front of us. Lord, I pray that as we look at it this morning that we would grasp what you have done for us. We would understand your design for our lives and we would be full of love and gratitude for what you've done. So Lord, would you come to us and help us? Would you help us interact with your word? Would you help us to do that well? I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Romans chapter 5. What we're going to look at this morning is we look at our disciplines is a biblical view of trials and tribulations. If you're like me, when something challenging comes into your life, you just want to get through it as quickly and as easily as possible and and move on to a nice, smooth season of life. Um, Whatever it is, whether it's a work challenge or a family challenge or a financial challenge or anything like that, um, our natural inclination is to want to get past the trial quickly and get back to the normal, ready, everyday, nice life that we have that God's given to us. What we're going to read this morning is uh, something that helps us understand why God brings trials into our lives. It has to do with the confidence we have in our eternal peace. So let's read verses 1 to 5 together. And as we do, just pay attention to the last uh, three or four verses. We're going to be looking at God's design for tribulations or trials. So Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he has just explained to them in chapter 4 that uh, salvation is completely by grace. It is from God, uh, the Jew or the Gentile. Neither one has done anything to earn it. And he begins talking about justification and how justification is something that is given to every believer by God. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Beginning of the passage, Paul is talking about believers and how they have been justified. With God, they have been brought into right standing with God, their sin has been atoned for, and we understand that that's done through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our understanding of Him as our Savior and our Lord. And one of the blessings of that, as we see in verse 2, is that the believer exults, they are overjoyed at something, and what they're overjoyed about is the glory of God, and that is speaking of the return of Jesus Christ. And the place that we will be when Jesus is ruling and reigning in his creation here on this earth. And the believer himself exults as they look forward to that in great anticipation. And every believer should think from time to time that, you know, uh, there is a time coming when the earth as we see it and as we know it now will end and there will be a new experience on this earth with Jesus ruling and reigning. And so salvation gives the believer the opportunity to look forward to a time with Christ as his rule on this earth And that is truly a joyful thing that we should all eagerly anticipate. The word hope there is not a wish. It's not a maybe. What the word hope is getting at there is a confidence in a certain future event. That is that Christ will return. And that when Christ will return, he will rule and reign. And so it's talking about a confidence in a certain future event. But in the last three verses, uh, Paul starts writing to them about trials and the right view that a believer should take for trials. And it'll come out here how it is that this relates to our disciplines in build, namely reading the word, meeting with the Lord in prayer, shepherding your own heart, shepherding your home, and then actively being involved in ministry at this church or any local church. Verse 3, in addition to exulting in the return of Christ and being overjoyed at the return of Christ, we should have that same disposition towards tribulations, towards trials, towards challenges in our lives. And he tells us why in the middle of verse 3, because tribulations bring about perseverance. The word perseverance there is describing the process that a believer goes through as they walk through a trial, as they're trusting the Lord, as they're meeting with the Lord, as they're confident in the Lord's direction over their circumstances in their life. And they trust him and they believe him that he will be working in all of these things for our good. It's a very active word. It's not just a grin and bear it and wait until it's over and holding your breath. It's active word. It speaks of an active engaging with the Lord. As you believe in his promises, you're informing your mind and your heart on a regular basis of God's control and his sovereignty over all circumstances. So the believer looks at that and they, as they walk through a trial, abiding with Christ, as they walk through a trial, being informed in their heart and their mind with the truth of God's word. As they walk through a trial, confessing to the Lord in prayer where you need his help, confessing your sin and repenting from sin. What that does is that brings about proven character in the believer. And as the believer lives with proven character, what God is doing there is he is affirming that he has chosen them and he is finishing the work that he began in them. Philippians 1 says that God is faithful to finish the work he began in us. And this is how he does it. He brings us trials that grow us in our confidence and our trust in him, grow us in our Christ-likeness, grow us in our sanctification. And so that proven character also affirms to us what is coming in the future, that God is maturing us in our faith, God is growing us because he is leading us step by step, day by day, sometimes even just hour by hour. He is leading us to the place where Christ is going to return and set up his kingdom here on this earth. So, what that means for us here this morning is we don't know when the trials come. We might be in one right now. Uh, we might not. Um, if you're in a season of trial, what that means is that we are have the mandate in front of us to persevere. And the best way we persevere is by meeting with the Lord uh, over his word, by meeting with the Lord, sharing our heart, crying out to him, crying out to him with words of praise, words of thanksgiving, words of confession, um, asking him to help us in, in our everyday life. So that is how the disciplines relate to trials. So I just want to encourage you, if you're in a trial today, whether it's a work one, whether it's a family one, or a health one, or a financial one, or anything else, um, keep your Bible open. <clears throat> keep the channel of communication open between you and the Lord. Close your eyes and pray often. And the Lord will use that uh, to confirm in you what he, the work he has done in you and confirm in you where he is taking you when this is all done. So I hope that encourages you guys to... Have your Bibles open regularly and continue reading. I want to encourage you guys, if you're on a reading plan, to continue being on that reading plan. Work your way through the New Testament. Work your way through the Old Testament. Remind yourself of the life of Jesus and the Gospels. Um, Do that regularly. If you don't have a reading plan, I'd love to talk with you some more. We have reading plan materials in the back of your notebooks that can help you um, with a reading plan that will take you through the Bible in the course of a year or so. so. That's our disciplines for this morning and how it relates to trials in our lives. Okay, so uh, I forgot to do something beforehand. Um, It's something I want to make sure I do consistently. Um, Whenever we have someone who's decided to attend partway into the year, I want to make sure I introduce them to give everybody a chance to meet them. But this is Rem. Rem and his wife Sarah uh, moved here from California uh, just this week, their house. And um, they were at uh, John MacArthur's church in L.A., And they've moved here, and Rem is joining us. So if you haven't met him yet, say hi to him, and he will uh, say hi back to you. Okay, uh, so we've been talking about mostly Discipline 1 in our lessons so far this year. Uh, Today we're going to make a switch. We're going to go to Discipline 2, and we're (coughs) going to talk about a biblical survey. And I've known Eric for a long time, and uh, I can tell you one thing, that Eric is a good manager of his home he leads his home very, very well. He leads his wife well. So you'll be listening to a man who, who does practice the message he's going to give to you. So Eric, come on up and um, let's hear from Eric.
1: So like Scott said, we've been talking about discipline number one for, I think, four out of the five weeks that we've been meeting. And today we get to see you know different ways that Discipline number one, our hearts affect the home, and how the home can affect the heart as well. And I'm going to try to get us out of here before noon. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to have a lot of scripture to work through. We're going to be flipping around in our Bibles a whole bunch. And so we're just going to go ahead and get started. We're going to be working through our Bibles from left to right, the way God wrote it. We're going to be covering a lot of the Old Testament. We're going to be working in the New Testament. And before we dive into it, let's, let's, uh, let's pray. God, this is your word. You have spoken. Your word has power, it has authority, it tells us who you are, tells us who we are, and informs us of what you want. God, you have provided it. Please help us to listen, to listen well to rightly order our homes as men leading our homes. Lord, that we would, by your grace, uh, do that to your glory. And Jesus, it is always in your great name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to cover a huge swath. It's going to be a survey of the home, so this doesn't get into everything. There will be other times over the course of the rest of the year that we're going to get into specifics, but this is going to be covering uh, a survey. It's going to cover a lot of different aspects, specifically as your outline says, nine categories from scripture to help us align our view of our household with God's heart for them. I'm going to be making a case for why discipline two, the home, is one of our disciplines. That it is the second discipline. And uh, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. As you guys are turning there, uh, Exodus 20, this is This is the Ten Commandments. This is shortly after Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt. This is at Mount Sinai. This is where God has given the the Ten Commandments to Moses so that he can give it to the people. And in verse 12, one of those commandments is honor your father and your mother. Jump down to verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Verse 17, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Verse 12 talks of the parent child relationship. Honor your mother and father. So it's a foundational relationship in the home that there's parents, there's children, there's a mother, there's a father. And he provides. A regulation for uh, that you are to honor your father and mother. In verse fourteen, you shall not commit adultery. It's talking about the husband and wife relationship. It's talking about marriage. God provides regulation for that. And in verse seventeen, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife. His male, female servants, his ox, his donkey, his car, his house, all those other things that belong to your neighbor. Your, 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 your eyes and your heart are supposed to be focused inwardly on your own home, not on your neighbor's. God provides these foundational relationships. God, here, God has provided the, the regulation that he gave at Mount Sinai is a set of rules and regulations that he had never done before. Not quite like this. And this was a very, th- uh, a very new thing. And uh, he highlights it with this foundational relationship, those relationships that are in the home. And we are to respect and protect and honor those relationships that he saw as foundational. Flip over to uh, just a, to Deuteronomy chapter four. Deuteronomy chapter four, verses nine and ten. And here, this is kind of on the other side of the Pentateuch, the other side of the Exodus, this is where they've been wandering in the wilderness. Moses has been leading the Israelites and they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're just, they've come to the Jordan. They're still in the wilderness. They can see the the promised land over there. And they're being given another dose of significant uh, instruction. And so in verse nine, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. What what discipline does that sound like? Discipline one. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord, your, our God, at Horeb? When Yahweh said to me, assemble the people that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. God very much wants the children of these men of these homes to know the Lord. He wants to know what was being told, what was known, what was being communicated. They were specifically to to make them known to your sons and your grandsons. This is multi-generational. It's not just, I want my immediate family to be impacted. I want my immediate family to be impacted such that they are impacted enough that they tell their children. So it's multi-generational. And it's hard to miss how discipline one how discipline two follows very closely on the heels of discipline one. The one is leading directly to the other. And God's concern for Israel that their hearts would be impacted and that they would then impact multiple generations. Let's flip over a couple more pages to Deuteronomy chapter six. Very familiar passage that we'll be covering later in the year. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That should sound familiar. It's one of the two greatest commandments that Jesus quoted in the New Testament. These words, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your hearts on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God first, in here, he has ordered, what what comes before discipline two? Discipline one. one. God's talking about you shall love the Lord Love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. God, that, that, that is the most important thing to the Lord. And therefore it should be the most important thing to us. It's our hearts before the Lord. Then you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and you walk by the way when you lie down, and when you rise up. What point in time are we not to be teaching and talking and diligently teaching these things to our, our children? Never. We're going to be doing it all the time, right? God's word should be a pervasive characteristic in our homes. And, and this is not that there's always a formal time that this is. If our hearts are being impacted by God's word, then this is what's just going to spill over. It's kind of like if you're at SeaWorld and Shamu and you're in the splash section, it's like your family's the ones that are closest to you. That means you're Shamu, by the way. And, uh, and, and when, you, when you're impacted, that water's just going to get all over them. Um, and in the same way, if our hearts are truly being impacted, if we're shepherding our hearts with God's word, that is going to impact them. They're going to get wet with God's word. And, you know, when you're walking around with them, you can, you're going to have biblical things on the brain and you're going to be able to, to, to take advantage of different situations and circumstances that the Lord provides. And that's what we want to do so that we are, uh, when we are sitting in our homes, when we're walking, by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up all the time. And there should also be purposeful time, formal time, but also just to make use of the, the other times opportunistically. God uh, is determined for Israel that there would be an inseparable connection between what they did with their own hearts and what they did with their families. Let's flip over uh, one page to Deuteronomy chapter 7. When Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Pezzarites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. And then in verse three, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor your nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. Israel was not to even let these types of households, these mixed households, even begin. They were not to even begin. Why? Right there, in verse four, because they will turn your sons away from following me. And we've seen that you, know, you, you might have a number of different examples of this throughout scripture in your mind where, where there was a intermarrying with these others. And what did they do? What did they result in? They turned the hearts of the, the, the fathers and, and the sons. They, the, there was a turning of away from Yahweh. And so the burden was on the father and mother in Israel to shepherd their children in such a way that the children would not abandon Yahweh. And so we know that D1 impacts D2, the heart impacts the home. And here the emphasis is actually on how the home affects the heart. So if, if there was this intermarrying going on, that that being brought into the home was going to actually affect the heart and not in a positive way. All right, we're going to flip over to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 was written by Asaph, a masculine of Asaph. Verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he, God, established testimony in Jacob. And appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. That the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. In verse five, where it talks about, for he established a testimony in Jacob and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers that they should teach them to their children. What, what, what's the them there in, in verse five? The testimony, the law, God's words that he had communicated back throughout uh, in the Pentateuch and, and, and others. Uh, th- this is God's word that they should teach God's word to their children, to the generation to come, that they may arise and tell God's word to their children. In verse 7, he he positively explains that they should put, or what they would arise and tell their children, that they should put their confidence in God. So these, these parents are teaching and shepherding their kids such that they would put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And then negatively, he says, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart. A generation that did not practice discipline one, a a, a generation that did not shepherd their hearts with God's word to know the God of the word. And therefore, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So so do this, don't do this, put this on, and put this off. The obligation that God put on Israel for them to shepherd their children here is is just undeniable. We're going to go to Malachi, Malachi, chapter 4. So that is, the last book of the New Testament, the last page—or I'm sorry, last book—the Old Testament, the last page of the Old Testament. So, find Matthew and turn back one page. So, this is talking about the Day of the Lord, Christ's return. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip out like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servants? Even the statutes... And ordinances which I have commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, t- great and terrible day of Yahweh, and he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Through Elijah, God is turning uh, the heart of one generation back to the other and vice versa. God's way of preparing his people for the coming Messiah and strengthening them, is with these household relationships. Again, God is showing the importance of the home, the importance of these foundational relationships. Let's go jump into the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. This is a well-known passage again. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So just kind of a quick aside on verse number 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Your guys' authority over your children does not come just because of who you are and that they came forth from you. It's because God told them they're responsible for the Lord to obey you guys. And, and that's a, a great verse to tell them, you don't do it because I said so. You do it because the Lord told you to obey me. Um, but uh, that's just a small aside. On verse 2, uh, God specifically tells them that they're to honor your father and mother. The, the fifth commandment from the Old Testament now is brought under the authority of Christ. God or Jesus provided that such that they would, uh, under the, the authority of Christ in the church. And children need to shepherd their hearts well in the gospel so that they are prepared, so that their hearts are prepared to honor and obey parents and the other authorities as they grow older. And in verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger and to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Dads and moms, we need to shepherd our hearts so as to not be completely frustrating to our children and exasperate them. And here, so God is showing in the New Testament that household relationships matter to him. Now we're going to flip over to First Timothy. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. This is elder qualifications. Uh, Again, another fairly familiar passage. It is a trustworthy statement. Well, in verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Down in verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Here, God is making the argument from the lesser household, the immediate family, to the greater household, the church of God. And it's a part of God's design to have uh, the church, to have men leading the church that have trained themselves to oversee their own household relationships well, and that that is a... Uh, qualification that they aren't leapfrogging over their own homes, such that they would then do ministry. They have to show and demonstrate that they're doing that well before they get the responsibility of doing this for the for the larger household, the Church of God, God's house. And so, the you know category one, God's concern for the household. I think it's very clear and undeniable that God cares about the home. God cares about those foundational relationships that are in the home, and uh, he has very high expectations for for what those look like. Very high expectations. Category number two. One Old Testament man who grasped God's heart for the household. Let's go to Joshua chapter 24. (laughs) So, Joshua chapter 24. so the last chapter in Joshua. They have, uh, this is during the conquest of Canaan. They were clearing out the, the different seven nations, and they hadn't quite completed it. And this, perhaps, is the last address that Joshua gives to the people. And in verse 14, Now therefore, fear Yahweh, and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods, which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. So Joshua says, put away. He's addressing the people. He says, put away the gods. What's the implication there of what the people of Israel were doing? They still had those idols. They still had them. Put them away. And uh, if we go back to verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called the elders of Israel for the heads, for their heads, and for their judges and their officers, and presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah and uh, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So the patriarchs, starting with Abraham, says they served other gods. So who did you know the man that God chose to start the the is the, the whole nation of Israel with Abraham? He chose an idolater. There were no there were no other ones to choose. He chose an idolater. They were all serving other gods. And here, Joshua in this address, he he gathers all of these uh All the tribes, he calls for the elders, their heads, their judges, their officers. He brings them all to a place called Shechem. And I want you guys to flip over to Genesis chapter 33. We're going to draw this one out a little bit with Shechem. And this is all building the context for what we're going to talk about in Joshua. So Genesis chapter 33. Verse 18. Now, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. And so the city of Shechem, that wasn't really the name of the city. It was the name of a man who was in that city, which is in the land of Canaan, which he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city. And he he bought a piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe, Israel, God, the God of Israel. Chapter 34 goes into one of Jacob's sons. So Jacob had the 12 sons. He also had daughters. One of the daughters' names was Dinah. And here in chapter 34, this is a very kind of dark section where Dinah is raped by Shechem. And the sons of Jacob didn't, that didn't sit well with them. And so they then went and they deceived. Uh, Hamor and Shechem and, and the men of that city, they, they said, because Shechem, he loved Dinah, and he wanted to marry her. He had raped her, and he wanted to marry her. And they said, we can't intermarry with you. But if you guys all become circumcised, then we'll let that happen. And so they all did that. They all got circumcised. And when they were in pain from all of that, that's when Jacob, Jacob's sons came in, and they killed them all in Verse 26 of chapter 34, they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went forth. And they came upon and slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. And in verse in chapter 35, God said to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Israel Esau, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been me wherever I've gone. And in verse four, so they, chapter 35, verse four, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were on their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. So this was where Jacob said, Give me all of your gods, give me all of these idols. And we're gonna bury them under the oak which is near Shechem. This was supposed to be the place where they buried these idols, and they never came back. And for for Israel, Shechem, when they heard that, it was about idolatry. They 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 knew that was going to be about idolatry if Shechem was brought up. And so when, Je- back over into chapter 24 of uh, Joshua, so when Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel, all the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers, and he said, hey guys, we're going to go meet at Shechem. What do you think he's going to be talking about? Idolatry. So all of that, to bring us into verse 14, now therefore, Fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Put those away. You guys are still doing this. 400 years you're in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and you guys are still doing this. Put it away and serve the Lord. Verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve Yahweh, Choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether it's the gods, the gods of your fathers, uh, the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are currently living or will be living. But as for me, Joshua, and my house, we will serve the Lord. We are going to serve Yahweh. And the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. The people, these people, Israel, they were, they were syncretists. They wanted to combine the practices of these different gods with serving Yahweh. So here, when they said, we won't forsake serving Yahweh to serve other gods, we don't see that as mutually exclusive. We'll do that and we'll do this. For, in verse 17, for Yahweh our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. From the house of bondage who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went. And among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. Yahweh drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will, we also will serve Yahweh. Yahweh. You see that? We will also serve Yahweh? You know We got these gods. We don't want to give up. We will also serve Yahweh. For he is our God. Verse 19. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve Yahweh. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods... Then he will turn and do, do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And people said, no, but we will serve Yahweh. And it goes on. And Joshua was a man who got and understood what it was to shepherd his home, to care for his home in such a way that him and his household were going to serve Yahweh. They were not going to mess around with serving these gods because he knew who God was, his holiness, and those things are mutually exclusive. You cannot serve these foreign gods. You cannot serve anything else and serve Yahweh. Category number three. Old Testament failures to grasp, to grasp God's heart for the household. Exodus chapter four. verse 21 so this is before moses goes into egypt well i guess he was in egypt he left egypt he ran away and this is the burning bush this is uh where moses goes up on mount horeb and god calls moses and then God says to Moses, I'm going to send you over there, you're going to be my representative there, and Moses says, but I can't speak very well, and then God's angry with him, and then uh, then he's like, okay, you can use Aaron, he'll be your mouthpiece, and uh, so Moses hesitantly says, okay, and then he's going to go, he agrees, And in verse 21, Yahweh says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Verse 24, now it came about, at the lodging place on the way that Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. Verse 25, Then Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet, and she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. Moses put God's deliverance of his people Israel potentially at risk by neglecting, circumcising his own son. His family didn't even have the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant, Uh, in the next generation, which was Moses' son. And so Moses was supposed to then go to Egypt, to God's covenant people, to explain what the covenant God of Israel was going to be, how he was going to be delivering them. And here you had Moses who was neglecting the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. Could that covenant neglecting man speak for the covenant God to God's covenant people? praise God for for obedient wives let's go to first Samuel chapter 2 verse 12 So this is talking about Eli, who was priest in Israel, and his sons, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh and the custom of the priest with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling and with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle and the cauldron or the pot and all the fork that brought up the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give, me, give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, "No, but you will. You shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force." Thus, the sin of the young men was very great before Yahweh, for the men despised the offering of Yahweh. Jump down to verse twenty-two. So, this, so, so Eli was the priest, and his sons were also operating as priests, and they were they despised the offering of the Lord. And in verse 22, now Eli was very old and he heard that all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So it wasn't just despising the offering of the Lord, they were also sinning in this way. And he said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? So this is Eli confronting them. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear from Yahweh's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? But they, the sons, would not listen to the voice of their father, for Yahweh had decided to put them to death. And then in verse 27, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says Yahweh. Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt? And drop down to verse 29. This is still God speaking through the man of God that came to to Eli. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me? You honor your sons above me. With all the emphasis on the household relationships, God's not looking for household members to honor one another above him. And we're going to get into that a little more in number category seven. And because Eli was honoring his sons above the Lord... God ended his priestly line. He was never going to have an old man in his family line from there forward. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15. Again, so these are the Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the household. So we've seen Moses, we've seen Eli, and now we're going to see Samuel. verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on the circuit, on circuit to Bethel and to Gigal and to Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, his house was there. And there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to Yahweh. In chapter 8, verse 1, and it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. So this is the time of the judges, and this is ending the time of the judges, Uh, Samuel was the last judge and he had appointed his sons to judge Israel. And now, the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel's sons, did not walk in his ways. They turned aside and they took dishonest gain and they took bribes and they perverted justice. And in verse four, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. The nation of Israel was chafing under Samuel's sons and they came with this ungodly request for a king. They were not satisfied with these judges. They were not satisfied with God being king over them. They wanted a king like all the nations. Sin- Samuel's ministry lacked the integrity it could have had because his household was out of order. And this is also a great example of how an out of order household hmm. affects, can affect have significant consequences and here affect the nation. We're going to skip the next one and we're going to drop down to First to Kings chapter 11. In 1 Kings 11, chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1, this is King Solomon. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which Yahweh said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon, Solomon was given everything. Humanly speaking, that we would even desire. He had all the wisdom and riches and power and a thousand women. And uh, that was not in alignment with God's desire for the home. God's desire was not that there would be a thousand women. We've already covered that specifically God said, commanded, don't intermarry. What did Solomon do? Intermarried with him. And what was the consequence that we heard was going to happen? It's going to turn the hearts of your sons away from Yahweh. And what did it do? His heart, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh. And again, this one had significant consequences for the nation of Israel. Because of this, In verse 9, now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what Yahweh had commanded. So Yahweh said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. This was the last time that Israel was a united kingdom. Going forward, it was a divided kingdom. Solomon's son had one part of the kingdom, and uh, um, his servant had the other part. It was a divided kingdom going forth from there forward. And so Solomon's sin and not caring for those relationships in his household the way God had desired and the way God had commanded had serious consequences, and it was given to us as an example of failure. Let's step into to category four. The ease at which God is forgotten in the household. The ease at which God is forgotten in the household. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 again. Verse 10. Then it shall come about when Yahweh your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build, and houses full of all good things, which you did not fill, and huge cisterns, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself. Guard yourself that you do not forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Here, talking about the prosperity for the things that they had, that they were getting, that they did not work for, that they did not do, God specifically said, watch yourself for those things. Flip on over to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless Yahweh your God for the land which he has given you. Beware, verse 11, beware that you do not forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes, which I am commanding you. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good homes, houses, and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget Yahweh, who, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house, the house of slavery. It's very sad when the home becomes a platform where God is forgotten. Here they had their home and their livelihood and all these things wrapped up. And it was in a way that they hadn't actually done these things and their pride took over and they forgot the Lord. And they weren't thankful and their hearts were turned away. Category five the impact of one's faith, one person's faith on the entire household. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. verse 22 they they said Cornelius a centurion a righteous and God fearing man well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you so he invited the man, gave them lodging this is where uh, they had come to Peter And on the next day, Peter got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied them. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So this is where Cornelius uh, was, you know, saw a vision, and Peter saw a vision. Um, and so Cornelius sent men that said, you know, you're supposed to come over here. So Peter came, and, and Cornelius was a Gentile. Uh, a God fearing Gentile proselyte uh, who had this vision, and Peter, being a Jew, technically wasn't even supposed to associate with these Gentiles. But God gave him a vision, said, What I have, uh, what God is clean, no longer consider unclean, and sent him along. And in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening. To the message. And all circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For Cornelius, his entire household and beyond was impacted by one heart for God. The household was a platform for God's truth to come to others. Acts chapter 16, let's flip over there. This is another. place where God takes an Old Testament believer, in this case, Lydia. Uh, Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, an Old Testament saint, who was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to respond to uh, the to have a Messiah-knowing faith. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you would judge me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Again, God took this one person, opened her heart, and had affected her entire household, and they were all baptized. And so again, the household in this case was used again as a platform for God's truth. Has that happened to anybody here? To where there was... You know, one person in a home, and then God uses that to affect those the rest of them in the household. I know, personally, uh, some cases where husband and wife, that kind of situation happened, where God saved one, and the other one was like that as well. Anybody happen to that? You're nodding your head.
0: I know people. Oh, okay. We know people in this church. There was a man on our elder board who uh, he and his wife got engaged as unbelievers, and uh, they came to Christ at the same time during their engagement.
1: Got married, mm-hmm. so, so God loves to use that as an instrument in a way that he does that. Let's go to Acts. Drop down to... Uh, we're in chapter 16. Drop down to verse 22. This is the, the Philippian... Well, actually, we're going to drop down to verse 27. This is the Philippian jailer. So Paul... Paul is in jail. Paul and Silas are in jail, in the Philippian jail, and the jailer, uh, in verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, so there had been an earthquake and the doors were all opened, he drew out his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, we are all here. And he called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he had brought them out, he said, sirs, What must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. One man, what must I do to be saved, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all his household believed, and they were all baptized. The jailer, whose responsibility was to keep the prisoners locked up, how often do you think he brought prisoners home? This was not something that he did brought these prisoners home, his house, listened to him, and God used that uh, to save the whole house. Category six, the attack on the household. As we've been covering, it's abundantly clear God cares significantly for the home and the household and those household foundational relationships. And if God cares for those so much, we shouldn't be surprised that they would come under attack from God's enemies. Let's turn to Second Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. Uh, Skip down to verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them, verse 6, are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's these men with this these the, the list of all these different sins that God, that Paul here, God through Paul says, avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households. Where are the men? These men are coming into these households. Where where are the men who are supposed to be standing up in their households to uh, prevent that sort of thing from happening? And these women. They, they're weak. And the, the men who are entering into those households are able to captivate them. They're weighed, these women are weighed down with their sins and their various impulses. And evidently, these women in these homes didn't know how to use the gospel to address their sin or those impulses. They weren't equipped to know well how to deal with that. They're soaking in this false teaching that these men are coming in, they they are captivated by it. And we don't, I don't think we would have to worry about us coming home from work or whatever and finding uh, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness sitting there and our wives are captivated by what they're saying. However, do you know what books your wife is reading? Do you know what blogs She's reading. Do you know what she's reading on Facebook? Do you know what sermons or messages she's listening to? You know, we're all consuming information in various ways. But we need to be men who are we're aware of what those things are and not just let somebody else whispering in, in their ears. And, and also, this also goes into shepherding with our kids. We need to be ones who understand what other sources are affecting them. And that comes from also, you know, phones, Internet and TV and all those things. It's like there's there's input into all of them. And we need to be aware of what that input is so that we can stand, stand there and shepherd well there. Let's go to Titus chapter one. About one page over. Verse nine. So this uh, it, the end of verse nine is talking about the qualifications for elders from verse five through verse nine. and God, as one of the qualifications for elder, says that they have to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that that elder, that man, will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Why does an elder have to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and be able to refute those who contradict? Verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, especially those here in this context of the Jews, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sword and gain. So so here again is another example where these rebellious men are stepping into households and upsetting whole families. And they're teaching things that are contrary to what God's word says. And again, where are the men here to let their whole families get upset by this? So, the household's best protection is a man who is shepherding his heart well. And... Then, stepping into those foundational family relationships to shepherd them well, shepherding their wives, shepherding their children, so that it 's not even really possible that somebody 's going to step into their household and upset them because they know god 's truth they're aware of god 's truth they 've been shepherded with god 's truth, and then God has as a, is part of the greater family, God has elders that can also uh, clearly refute and exhort uh, error. So it's not that you guys have to know everything. You guys are you guys have God's word, and you guys being believers, you have the Holy Spirit. You're well equipped to handle the the Word of God, and you're well equipped to step in and prevent men like that from coming into your homes. Let's go to category seven: How the household can become an obstacle to the gospel. We've been covering a lot of scripture about how God sees household relationships as very important. And yet, we're going to cover this passage in Matthew chapter 10. So let's flip over to Matthew chapter 10. That the household can actually, verse 34, become an obstacle to the gospel. And and we don't want to lift up, we want to to be in agreement with God. We don't want to lift up the household above the gospel. We want want to have things in the right priority, in the right order that God has them. We don't want to lift up the household relationships higher than they should be. So in uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he's addressing there specifically in verse 37 one who values those household relationships, loves them more than Christ, is not worthy of Christ. That gets back to discipline one and two. Discipline one is our own hearts. God expects and wants our own hearts first and foremost and then those household relationships. So if one has that reversed, it's like, I want Jesus, but you know what? I love my father and mother, or my son or daughter, or my mother-in-law, and all those things. More is not worthy of me. When God changes the life of a person, of one person, I know my own experience uh, when God saved me, what was the first thing that I did? I started talking to those that were closest to me. I shared the gospel with well my sister God actually used my sister to, to save me uh, in that process, and uh, I shared the gospel with my brother, I shared the gospel with my parents, and, and those were just the natural things to do. You, you shared the gospel with with your with your family, um, those that are in a closest relationship with you. and then what happens next is all up to God. You know, we need to be you know faithful to share. The good news, and God takes that and does what He will. And some, some of those, He saves, and others He doesn't. We've we've seen examples of where God took one person and saved their whole household, but that's not what always happens. Sometimes God saves one person, and the household uh, turns on that person. And we know we know the wickedness that is in the heart, and if God hasn't changed a heart. It's going to be offensive. The gospel is going to be offensive. But the gospel is the apex of God's salvation plan. And we want to have the gospel in the right place. We want gospel, the gospel to be supreme. And the family is not the supreme thing. The gospel is. And so those relationships and the, go- and the family need to be subservient to the gospel. And Jesus here, you know, tells us that oftentimes the gospel will divide members of the household. And, you know, my parents are still not believers. My brother is not a believer. And sometimes those relationships are very difficult. And every opportunity that I get when I go back and visit and have those interactions is another opportunity that I get to share the gospel. And it's not my timeline. It's not that I share it and boom, they become believers. It's all in God's hands. And, and I want to be faithful to share. Have, I want to be faithful to walk in the opportunities that God provides and see what he does. And even though, and, and one of the things that I think is interesting about family and those relationships, it's, I would not be friends with a lot of people if I did not have family relationships. They, those, those relationships would just end, but God has them as family relationships, so they're not ending, so they continue to be opportunities where they may not have been otherwise. So if you have difficult family, look forward to that. Pray about your heart before you go into those. I know my wife and I, we, we pray about those when we have uh, some of those interactions. And uh, so that our hearts are right about that it's a gospel opportunity. All right, we're going to skip down to uh, category number eight. Leading a wife that requires a strong grasp of the gospel and the church. Ephesians chapter five. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives... Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, cherishes it, just also as Christ does the church. Men, we must shepherd with the gospel to the gospel. We must spend the rest of our lives having such a solid grasp on the gospel that, that we are sinners. We deserve hell. And God rightly deserves to condemn every single one of us. But God, in his mercy and compassion, provides a way, provided his son to go to the cross to pay the price for sinners. And he absorbed the wrath of God for every sin, for every person that has turned by faith to him and they get to be with him forever. We get to spend a lifetime studying that knowing that so that we can then shepherd those around us to that. And we also need to have a solid grasp on the church of God's plan and this institution called the church, not a building. This is this. Is, these are believers that uh, Christ is the head of this body called the church. We need to understand that the gospel and the church, because then we can rightly understand here in verse in, in this passage. God uses the church, uh, Christ, and the church as a way to explain the husband and wife relationship in marriage. And so we need to but well understand both. The gospel and the church, so that we can rightly understand what God has planned uh, for marriage, that relationship. And if we if we don't do that, our love for our wife will be incomplete and it will be stunted. We're going to jump to category number nine and uh, New Testament model for marriage. We're going to be in Acts chapter eighteen. We're almost done. Verses 1 through 3. After these things, he left Athens, Paul, and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them because he was at the same trade he stayed with them they were work for and they were working for by trade they were tent makers flip over to verse 24 and at that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius a silversmith who had made a, or I'm sorry it's in chapter 18 Uh, 1824 now a Jew named Apollos an Alexandrian by birth an eloquent man came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being only acquainted with the baptism of John and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately And if we go to Romans chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 3. This is the the end of the book of Romans where Paul, as is a common thing, says greet these people and, and, and welcome these people. And here he says in verse 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only I do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. And so here you had this, this marriage, Priscilla and Aquila, who were with Paul, they traveled with him, and here they were in Rome, and, and, and he explains that they'd even risked their necks for him. And here, this marriage, their household, was a platform for the gospel. There was a, a spiritual aroma that came off to where Paul even says, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. These, this couple, this family was well known. It was well known for, for what they had been doing and how they had been used by God in the spreading of the gospel. We, we need to strive to have our homes and our marriages reflect that sort of sort of, uh to have that sort of characteristic. So, in in summary, what can we conclude from these nine categories? These nine categories of the home. Negatively, to ignore or neglect or be indifferent to household relationships would stand in stark contrast to God's thoughts and expectations for the household. Positively speaking, a heart that is shepherded to God through his word, discipline one. And then that man steps lovingly and boldly into those household relationships with the word of God to care for those in your household. That, that, that man who is shepherding his heart is well equipped to step into his home and take, take the word of God and shepherd those relationships. And if you're a man that does that with his home, and then that's evidence that you've seen God's heart for the household. So. Scott, that's all I got. Good. Want to close in prayer? Yes. Lord, I'm thankful for our time as we have covered so much scripture. So much of your word in in your heart for the home and for these relationships. Mother, father, children, Even grandchildren. Lord, I pray for our hearts that we would be diligent, first and foremost with our own hearts, to shepherd our own hearts to you through your word as you have revealed it, so that we may know you, the God of the word. And Lord, I pray that we would boldly step into these relationships, these foundational relationships in our homes, such that we would diligently teach our sons and our daughters that we would diligently shepherd our wives, that that these relationships, these household relationships that are closest to us, that we would uh, just faithfully bring the word of God. Lord, that you would protect our homes with the word of God, that uh, this culture that we live in, that we would be well-equipped to do so. Jesus, we want to make, make much of you. We want our homes to be platforms for the gospel to be used in discipline number three, the ministry. We want to see people come to know you. Lord, we pray for all of this, and it is to your glory that we pray it, and it is in your name we pray. Amen.